pray. Heavenly Father, we have just sung that we want to behold you. We want to see you on your throne and behold you. We realize that Christ is seated on the throne beside you. Why? Because it is accomplished. His work is done. And we can rest assured in what he has done, not what we can do. And so as we open your word this morning, help us to come and adore you. Help us to come and glorify you. And may we be transformed through the hearing and the applying of your word in our lives, we all pray. Amen. So please, if you are new or here regularly, open your Bibles, because we will spend lots of time in that, and I hope less time in my words. John chapter 5, on your outline this morning, Valerie was kind enough to send me a question mark on the top of our sermon notes, which says this, should we fill in the blanks between information, exaltation, and transformation? If you look at your sermon notes, for those that have it, those are intentionally left that way so I can explain to you what the goal of this sermon is. In fact, the goal of every sermon from the Church of the Canyons and every healthy church should be this. Information about God's word, which leads to exaltation of God, Father, Son, and Spirit, and produces transformation in our lives as believers. So that's the goal. That's my hope. That's my prayer that this sermon will accomplish. Last week, we were in John 4, and Dwayne, one of our elders, was preaching, and I think he is skiing with his family today, enjoying the beautiful snow that has fallen three hours away. Hopefully they are safe. And he talked, and Jen's just mentioned that, that there is a word that start with after these things. Before we go to after these things, I'm going to ask you one question. And I want this question to resonate the entire sermon. And at the end of it, we're going to reinforce this question. And here's the question. What is worse than being physically lame and disabled for 38 years? What is worse than being physically lamed or disabled for 38 years? And the answer is probably obvious to most of you. Spending an eternity separated from God. Verse 1. God's word opens up in chapter 5 and says, After these things, there was what? A feast of the Jews. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. You'll recall last week when Duane preached on the second sign of the healing of the official son when Jesus performed in Galilee. This sign was followed by an extended narrative with the Samaritan woman where she learned that she and many of the village of the Sychar came to faith in the belief in Jesus Christ. And all of which were found in John chapter 4 and covered over the last five weeks. 
Last week, we entered into the second sign. Now, remember, it's the second sign recorded in Galilee. What that means is there were other signs that were performed that were not recorded. How do I know that's true? God's word tells us that. John chapter verse 30, 20 verse 31. Remember? But these have been written so that you may, what? Believe. And that Jesus Christ is the son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name. What does that mean? There are other things that were said, other things that were done, other miracles that happened that were not recorded. But these were written, these were recorded so that they would produce belief. Information is to lead to exaltation. The gospel of John is like a a train, is it not? It's affixed to one track. John is a one-track apostle. It doesn't matter where he starts, where does he end up? Jesus Christ. Every moment he takes through his gospel is a singular station track. Many different points and journeys along this, but there's not any diatribes. There aren't any diversions. He is laser-focused towards the exaltation of Jesus Christ. Do you remember the opening words of John 1.1? Thank you. Thank you, Randy. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was? God. Do you see this? He doesn't waste any time. He gets right to the point. Verse 1 continues, After these things, there was a feast of the Jews. They went up to Jerusalem. Have you ever noticed in the book of John, he uses feasts to record Jesus' actions? Consider this. John repeatedly uses and ties his narrative account of his ministry of Jesus to feasts. John 2, 13, the Passover. John 6, 4, the Passover. John 7, 2, tabernacles. John 10, 22, the Feast of Dedication. John eleven fifty five, the Passover. But unlike in these other instances, this feast is the nameless feast. It's not the point of the story. You remember where we've journeyed? So we started in Jerusalem, went up through Samaria. One of three routes we could have gone up through. Which one did Jesus take? The one that goes to Sychar, why did Jesus take it? Because he had a divine appointment to meet with the woman at the well. And ultimately, many came to faith in the village, remember? And then he heads up to Galilee, where we see the second sign. And now he's heading to Jerusalem. And it says he headed up to Jerusalem. So the way my mind works is up is always what? North, wrong. Okay, so in this case, up is up. So there we go. There's your Bible lesson for today. Up is up. What does that mean? It means topographically. It means geographically. Physically, he's heading which direction? South, but he's heading up. Okay, sometimes when you read the Bible, you kind of go, huh, thought I knew that. Good to understand it. Okay, so up is up. There's the lesson. Jerusalem is 750 meters for the Canadians in this room. (laughs) Or 2,500 feet above sea level for the rest of you. 
24, 24, 24 to be exact, above sea level. It's a long journey from Galilee to Jerusalem, many ups and downs on routes, but they end in a climb up to Jerusalem. It's an ascent in the final leg of the journey. And it starts in verse 2, and, and, and God's word says, they come up to Jerusalem, and what, where, do they, where does Jesus go? He goes to the sheep gate at a pool, which in Hebrew is called Bethesda, having five porticos. The sheep gate is a northern section in Jerusalem for context. And there were two pools surrounded by five columns. And the sick people, the lame, would congregate under the porticos in under the, and around the columns for protection from the sun, from the elements. And they would shelter between these pools. Verse 3 continues. And in these lay a multitude who were sick, blind, lame, and withering or withered. People who had illnesses and maladies and they came and they waited and they shelter under this unusual fascinating phenomenon we're going to encounter here now jen's read from a bible version that included 3b and 4 but many of your bibles don't have that in there so take a look at god's word in your bibles depending on which translation you're going to see look down verse 1 verse 2 verse 3, and some of your Bibles don't include verse 4, do they? Or it may include it with a brackets around it. And so the question is, what's the deal? Why is this verse or these verses, one and a half verses, isolated or in some cases extracted? What happened? I think I know the answer. And I think the answer is this. Throughout history, there were many copyists that would take the documents and they would write and they would transcribe and they would retranscribe the documents over time. And I've seen ancient manuscripts at Southern Seminary. They brought us in the archives room and they would show these amazing old documents. And on the side, it would show where a change was made and where a copyist would perhaps have caught an error in the earlier transmissions. But what's amazing about this particular case is the earliest known manuscripts that have been located do not include 3b to 4. So in the integrity of the Bible, guess what has happened? The modern versions have extracted it rightly and said, no, it was not there. So the question is, why was it added in before? And I think the answer we're going to discover is in verse 7. So look down to verse 7. Verse 7, the sick man answered and he said, sir, I have what? No man to put me into the pool. And when the water is stirred up, but when and why I am coming, another steps down before me. Without 3B and 4, what in the world does verse 7 mean? Do you see? So the local knowledge at this time, there were not multiple pools where healing was supposed to have taken place, but a singular pool in Jerusalem called the pool at Bethesda. And so the way, that, the way that this goes, the way that the understanding was that the first person that was able to get in the waters as they bubbled up would be healed. Now, do we know this to be true? No. We know it to be understood to be true at this time because of what? 
verse 7. And so when you go back and look through the transmission through time, there are what they call copious inclusions. And so here's the point. Is God's word changing? Does God's word change? No. In its original form, in its original manuscript, God's word was perfect and fully complete. But through time, do copious errors ever occur? 100%. We know that to be true. But here's what we also know to be true. Of all of the copyist inclusions, errors, omissions, re-inclusions, what percentage of our theology, of our doctrines, of the critical points that lead to salvation change? And the answer is zero. So if somebody tries to challenge you biblically and say, are there any errors in the Bible? Oh, yes, there are copious errors. There are times when things were included rightly and perhaps wrongly that then are realized to be when the earliest documents are, are recovered that are then omitted or taken out rightly. So in your footnotes, you will see the earliest manuscripts in verse 4, often, in fact, all of the earliest manuscripts did not include this. Are we all tracking along? Okay, good. So the missing verses, if anybody asks you a Bible question, ready for this one? What are the missing verses in John 5, 1 through 17? Survey says 3B to 4. Hence, in your outline, I have not included B, 3B and 4 in the points. But I wanted to give you context so when you read God's word, you can read it comprehensively and understand what you're seeing in there. How did I derive my conclusions? Much study, way brighter people that have spent years and years looking through transmissions and the best-known commentaries that exist today land at what I've just told you to be true. So, was it a copyist or printing error? Yes, but not a modern one. So there's an answer to that question. The reason for this omission, the bracketing, and there's two key points. One, likely a later edition, just to summarize, likely by scribes. Perhaps they copied it mistakenly. Two, it was meant to clarify verse 7. This describes when you get to see it, it provides more the information, the sick, the lame, and why this local belief and these superstitions would be included. Interestingly, nowhere else do we read of such a pool with healing properties in all of God's word. The waters being stirred up may have been an underground spring, maybe a hot spring, which bubbles up from time to time, rich in minerals. It's hard to know why the people believed, but they did believe. This lame man was there for 38 years, and he wanted, and we're going to see, the most fascinating question and answer, perhaps, that I've ever read in the Bible. He, Jesus is going to come to him and ask him a single question. He's going to target him out of a multitude of people, and he's going to ask him one question. And the man's answer hinges on this belief that he has to get into this pool first before anybody else to have any hope of being physically restored. But who he's standing in front of just has to speak. That he has no idea. Amid the chaotic scene, 
Jesus targets one man. There are a multitude laying, and ultimately, if people are lame, that means there's probably more than just the lame people there. How do I know that to be true? Because if, you, if the prevailing belief is that you've got to get into the pool first, then many of the lame people would have other people to help them get into the pool. Make sense? So this is a big crowd, two pools, multiple columns, and it is chaotic. Jesus goes right to that location and does not find the multitude, but looks to one man. Look down to verse five. The sign, verse five. A man who had been there ill for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time in that condition, he said to him, here's the question. Do you wish to get well? Why would Jesus ask this question? Think about it for a second. Man's been there for how many years? 38 years. Where is he laying beside? The pool where you get well, supposedly, if you get in there first, right? How does he answer this question? Look down. The sick man answered him in verse 7, Sir, I have no man to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. This man ultimately is looking to Jesus to, could you help me get into the pool first? Here's a significant point. So if you take notes, please take note of this. Jesus did not come to the pool to heal everyone. Jesus did not come to the pool to heal everyone. Could he have healed everyone? Of course. All Jesus had to say is what? You're well. He could have left the pool. All would have been well. Everybody could have picked up their mats and walked. But he doesn't. Have you ever considered that? In fact, every place that Jesus went to, the miracles that he performs is not meant for the physical restoration but for spiritual purposes and edification. The purpose of the healings that Jesus performs is to engender belief, faith that leads to true spiritual wellness, not physical wellness. This man, he targets from among a multitude and he comes to him and he simply says, not how long have you been sick, what does God's word tell us? Jesus already knows all that. Jesus knows him. He knows how long he's had. What does that tell you? It's God. Have you ever walked in front of somebody that's ill and you know they're ill? Of course. Have you ever known how long they've been ill? Of course not. Jesus didn't need to be informed. There was zero conversation needed. Jesus knew exactly the state of this man, exactly how long. Now, some people have speculated that this man has been there since birth. We don't know that answer. God's word doesn't tell us that. We just know he's been sick for 38 years. What does that mean? Could he have been 10 
and then became lame and then has been there and now he's 48? It's possible. Or was he young and born that way and he's 38 years old? That's possible. It's not the point of the story. What is the point of the story? Verse 7. Do you wish to get well? Jesus looks at him, I believe, in the eyes and asks him this question. And the man's answer isn't, yes, I wish to get well. No, no, no. The man's answer is, I have no one to help me get in the pool. Do you remember before when the Samaritan woman meets Jesus? And they're waiting for, they're expecting a Messiah to come. That's not what we're getting from this story, is it? Not saying if the Messiah was here, I could have been made well. No, no, no. That's not at all his answer. My only hope is to get in the pool first, and no one's helping me get in this pool. So I'm holding out hope for that. And here's the King of Kings. Here's the Lord of Lords. He finds him. He's standing in front of him, and he asks, do you wish to get well? Verse 10. Skip down with me a few verses. The Jews were saying to the man who was cured, it is the Sabbath. It is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. I want to pause you right there. What do we know about this day? We're going to go back in a second to the previous verses. But what day is this occurring on? The Sabbath. Do you think that's accidental? Do you think it's coincidental? If Jesus came... Second question to consider. If Jesus came to the pool and says, you're all well, do you think it would have been such a reaction? In some ways, it would have been even a greater reaction, right? But Jesus finds what appears to be an obscure, nameless man, by the way. It's not named. We just know his condition. He targets him on the Sabbath, Because this particular man is going to do something which is going to set a train in motion that the rest of John is going to march right to the cross. This is the moment in the book of John where Jesus crosses the line to the Jews. This is the moment. And it's going to happen four more times in the next few verses all the way through. And Jesus is going to declare equality with God his father. And he chooses to do it on the day that's going to create the biggest problem of all. So let's go back. Jesus says to him, verse eight, get up, pick up your pallet and walk. Why does Jesus add, pick up your pallet? See, all he had to say to this lame man was this, Get up and walk, and guess what? No problem, no problem, but he doesn't. He says to him, get up and pick up your pallet and walk. Why? 39 Sabbath laws existed, 39. Man-made Sabbath restrictions that were enforced by the Jews, and they were not God's laws. These were man-made laws. The 39th of the 39th of them is you shall not carry anything on a Sabbath. 
So Jesus chooses the bottom rung of the man-made laws and tells him, get up and pick up your pallet and walk. And he does it. Immediately, verse 9, the man became well and he picked up his pallet and he began to walk. And verse 9 breaks into two parts. 9A is the sign, but 9B is going to be the time. This is going to be the date. This is going to be the problem because it's on the Sabbath. So let us look down to verse 9B through 16. And this is entitled false religion or the false religion. Instead of faith, this sign produces hatred by the false teachers who are focused on their false religion. Let me repeat that. Instead of faith, this sign, which is another word for miracle in the book of John, produces hatred by false teachers who are focused on their false religion. 9b to 16.3 in your outline. Now it was the Sabbath on that day, and so the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, it is the Sabbath, and it's not permissible for you to carry your pallet. Okay, Bible trivia part two. Who here in this room can point to which verse in the Bible precludes that, please? If we waited for three more hours, you would still be just as blank in expression (laughs) because the answer is it's nowhere. It's nowhere in the Old Testament. It's nowhere in the New Testament. So what in the world is this all about? It is not permissible for you to carry your pallet on the Sabbath. Nowhere, nowhere, nowhere. These are man-made laws. R.C. Sproul adds, in there, the rabbis, historical interpretation of the law, they had enumerated 39 specific types of work that were illegal on their Sabbath day. And the 39th rule of the Sabbath observance, the very last one on the list, was the prohibition against any carrying from something from one place to another. And as a result of that human rule, the Jews, react, or the Jews reacted very negatively when they saw this man, a man that had been lying paralyzed for 38 years, walking and carrying his bed. Instead of responding with joy and praising God for this miracle, what do they do? Sabbath. Sabbath. You're not allowed to do that. This guy's been an invalid for 38 years. Where is this place? In Jerusalem, do you think the Jews, the leaders, knew who potentially this man was? Yes, yes, yes. They probably passed him many times. This was not someone that was sick for 38 weeks, 3.8 years, 38 years, four decades. And now he's well. Now, I don't know if any of you have had an injury. I remember when I've injured both of my knees doing sports and probably not doing them well. So... One of them was, was playing hockey, and I remember blowing my right knee and dislocating my right knee, and there was nobody around me, by the way, so I can't even make up a wonderful story. I did it on my own. Here's my point. I went down, relo- you know, put the knee back in, all that kind of deal, 
ended up going through crutches and physio and everyone kept saying, well, that's because you're old, right? So that's how, that's how the doctors talk to you after you get to a certain age, I'm sure. So here's my point. I had to go through physio. I had to be weeks and weeks of physio. What happens here? 38 years. What's the technical term? When your muscles stop working? Thank you. Got some people that studied medicine, right? And so here's the point. It would have taken a long time for the muscles to regain strength and be able to stand, let alone walk. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. You are instantly well. How can I prove it? Get up. Don't just get up. Walk. Don't just walk. Pick up your pallet. It's instant. It's complete. It's full healing. It's full restitution. It's not progressive with Christ. That's true of us spiritually. We once were dead, but are made instantly alive through faith. The point of the miracles are never what it appears at first. There's always a much deeper point to this. The train is heading down the track. This is meant to engender belief. Does it? Look to verse 11. Actually, let's go to verse 10 one more time. The Jews were saying to the man who was cured, it is the Sabbath. It's not permissible for you to carry your pallet. And what does he say? Verse 11, he who made me well was the one who said, pick up your pallet and walk. What a horrible answer to a question, isn't it? He doesn't even know his name. You notice that? Jesus didn't talk about his name, and he didn't even know who Jesus' name was at this point. Verse 12, but they asked him, who, who is this man who said, you pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed, verse 13, did not even know who he was. For Jesus had slipped away while the crowd was in that place. Why do you think Jesus slipped away? What do you think the reaction would have been when they saw a 38-year invalid man healed? Can you imagine in today's day and age, for those that have worked maybe in an area where there's a lot of sick people, and if somebody like this, no, if Jesus walked in and healed one, what would have happened? It would have been chaotic. Everybody would have wanted to get to Jesus, right? Jesus slips away. It's not the point of the miracle. The man defends himself by blaming the one who told him to do it. He's not defending the power of the deity of Jesus, is he? But rather, he is ducking the authorities. All of this will shortly look to ingratiate or bring himself into favor with the rabbis. He's trying to please men, not the Lord. Verse 14 continues. Afterward, Jesus found him Don't you love where he finds him? In the temple. And he says to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore, so nothing worse happens to you. Afterward, Jesus finds him in the temple. We don't know how long afterwards is, by the way. But what is certain is that the second time in this short narrative, Jesus finds this man. The first time Jesus finds him, and he is stationary. The second time Jesus finds him and finds him in a particular location. 
Jesus finds him in the temple. And Jesus, remember the first time what Jesus asked him? Do you wish to be well? Verse 6. Look to 14b. Jesus found him in the temple and behold, and says to him what? Behold, you have become well. Do you, do you, do you see the, how that book ends? First time Jesus finds him, do you wish to be well? The second time Jesus found him and said, you are well. But then he adds, stop sinning for you think it's been bad so far. What's worse than 38 years? Physically lame. Eternity separated from God. See, many commentators, I think, look at this particular part of it, and I actually think potentially they get it wrong. And I don't usually say that, but there's a few of them that have deviated from the typical mainstream, if you will. So why do I say that? In 14b, there's a prevailing belief throughout Scripture where sickness equals sin, or sin produces, let me rephrase that, sickness. Is that true? Absolutely, that's true. There are many instances in Scripture where we can look to where there are sicknesses and sin. Let me give you some references. Micah 6, 13. So also I will make you sick, striking you down, desolating you because of your sins. New Testament references include Acts 5, 1 through 11. 1 Corinthians 11 through 20. They're in your notes. 1 John 5, 16. But, but, as the Apostle John will later clarify in his book in John 9, 1 through 3, sickness is not always a direct consequence of sins. As he passed by, remember he saw a lame man from birth and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? And Jesus answered, it is neither this, that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We can speculate all day long, and that's all we'd be doing. We don't know if this man's sickness is due to his sins. We don't know that. So it's not profitable. So when Jesus adds the word, stop sinning so that nothing worse may happen to you, it is possible that Jesus might have meant a worse physical ailment than what he's gone through for 30 years. That's possible, but I don't think it's probable. I think what Jesus is saying is this. 38 years laying beside a pool is nothing compared to eternity separated from a holy God. I think that's what Jesus meant. You think you have troubles looking back over your years? It's nothing compared to what's ahead if you don't turn from your sins. Here's the most shocking part of the entire story. Look down to verse 15. The man went away and he told the Jews, it was Jesus who made him well. He picked sides, didn't he? Whose side did he pick? The Jews. Jesus goes back not once but twice, first time to heal him, second time to tell him he's well, and to give an exhortation, a warning, stop sinning so that nothing worse may happen to you. And immediately he goes and tells on him. I think it's the saddest miracle of the entire Bible. I think this sign is deeply tragic and deeply exhorting and warning us today. 
He walks away from Jesus. He declares his loyalty to the Jews who hated Jesus. And he knew that. He knew that they were after Jesus for everybody knew they were after Jesus. And he turns Jesus in. That's the power of false religion. In the face of the compassion of Christ, in the face of an amazing miracle, in the face of a healing, this man declares his loyalty to the Jews who hated Jesus and wanted him dead. This must have been the most startling act of ingratitude and unbelief in all of the healings that Jesus ever did. He had no intention of worshiping Jesus. He has no intention of following Jesus. He knows that Jews are hostile. The Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things when? On the Sabbath. Verse 16 continues. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Have you ever considered in the Bible that most of the people that ever heard from Jesus, that were ever healed by Jesus, that ever saw the miracles of Jesus, never believed in Jesus? Have you ever thought of that for a second? Jesus healed massive numbers of people, many of which are not recorded in the Bible. Jesus spoke of crushingly dense crowds so thick that he had to get on the water to talk to them because they wanted their bellies full. This is the damning power of false religion. The lame man finally healed, took his side with those that had prescriptions for behaviors on the Sabbath. One commentator adds, Jesus could have rightly set them straight on their misunderstanding and misrepresentation in the relation to the Sabbath. The Sabbath was instituted, you remember, back in Exodus. Remember? When God delivered Moses in the Ten Commandments, the Sabbath was intended to be a blessing. But as Jesus said, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath, Mark 227. Our Lord here is confronting Jewish legalism. At its very heart, the Sabbath. He challenges the traditions. He his authority is the Lord over the Sabbath. He heals a man. He warns him about living in sin and the need to turn from his sin. And the man goes right back, loyal to his damning religion, and he turns him in. That is the power, the damning power of false religion. He took sides with those that had prescriptions for behaviors of Sabbath that triggers the persecution that then flows and as I've already read to you, all the way to the cross. This was not accidental by Jesus, but this was the moment in the book of John where the time clock starts where they now realize the Jews, the rabbis, the Pharisees, we got to kill him. This is the moment. The showdown has been brewing and now it's taking place. The religious leaders of Israel are faced with a decision. Will they submit to the authority of Jesus Christ? Or will they rebel against his authority and choose to live autonomously? Will they honor the Lord for who he is or elevate man-made rules above the creator of the mankind. We face the same underlying choice today. 
For us, it's not about 39 Sabbath legalistic rules, is it? But do we submit to Jesus as our Lord? Are we living for the things of this world? Do we live legalistically? Do we follow our Bibles with thankfulness and love for what God has already done for us? Or are we consumed by the problems of the temporal versus the beauty of the eternal? Only one verse remains for us this morning. We're going to touch on it today, but then we'll dive back into it, Lord willing, next week. This verse contains what I believe is the most startling claim ever made in the Bible. John Piper once preached three sermons, and the actual title of his sermons were the most startling verse or the most startling claim ever made in the Bible. I think he's right. Verse 17, Jesus says, but he answered them. Again, what is he answering about? Why did you do this? Why did you heal him? Why did you tell him to pick up his pallet and walk? He answers them, what? My father is working until now, and I myself am working. Bell has rung. Jesus has declared he is God. Clear. It is not ambiguous. This is the great declaration. Rightly understood, this claim is the start of the end of the ministry of Jesus on earth. He has publicly made himself equal to God in the great declaration. R.C. Sproul, who's passed, was a brilliant pastor and theologian and author, adds this comment. This is an astonishing declaration. There are many New Testament records of conversation between Jesus and the authorities, instances when the questions were raised to Jesus, and he gave a response. But this one is unique. Most of our English Bible translations begin with the verse, listen to this, the words Jesus said or Jesus answered. I want to pause because this is critical. We catch what R.C. is going to say. Most of our Bibles start with what? Jesus answered or Jesus said. R.C. continues. But hidden behind the English is the fact that the verb translated as answered is exceedingly rare. It is found in only in the context of trials and in courtrooms. When a formal defense is given against charges that are made. So John is telling us that Jesus was not simply answering a question. No, no, no. John was giving his, his awareness of Jesus' legal defense before the authorities who were accusing him of things they deemed worthy of death. What did R.C. mean there? When you read the words Jesus said or Jesus answered, in the original form in Greek, that would have been understood as a courtroom answer between a judge and he would have been on a defensive position. And what does he do? He gives a legal defense that he is equal to God. We missed that in English, didn't we? That's helpful. It's not about the Sabbath. It's about the Savior. It's about Jesus. This sign will appear, the focus on the most physical or the... So we could, we could easily look at this narrative and, and, and we could say, Jesus can physically do these amazing things. But if that's where we land the plane, I think we missed what Jesus was trying to get accomplished. 
A, he was going to declare himself as God. But B, he was going to say, unless you turn to me and turn from your old ways, you're going to be spending eternity without me. What's worse? Permanently separated from God in eternity. John 5, 14. This is not a storybook ending, friends. We see no sign of faith, no sign of belief. We see him physically healed. We do not see him turning to believe in Jesus. We do not see the, Jesus, the Jewish leaders turning to believe in Jesus. Think of the contrast between one chapter ago. Samaritan woman healed and believes. Goes to the town. The town comes out and many believe. Miracle comes in here. Third miracle that we can see recorded. We see no sign of belief and no sign of belief in the Jewish leaders. Remember I said to you, often when he came to his own people, his own people, what? Rejected him. Frankly, it's a sad narrative. And without verse 17, we could be left deeply saddened, which we must be and we are for the lost. But by the grace of God, there's the great declaration. He answers, my father's working until now and I myself am working. We receive, we need from time to time, some time off, do we not? Some of you maybe feel that way right now. Physically, you're kind of spent. So here's another Bible trivia question. Do you remember in the Bible, go way back in Genesis, Jesus, or Jesus, God, and the Holy Spirit are all involved in creation. But God the Father, we read here of the creation narrative, and it says after how many days he rested? Six. So he rested on the seventh day. So, here it is. Did God stop working on day seven? You ever thought of that question? Okay. Because if you say the answer yes, that means that the divinity of God, all of his attributes, would cease to exist on day seven. Who upholds the universe? The Bible says that he rested, but it also adds, blessed be who... The Lord who bears our burdens daily, the God who is our salvation. God, rest, in other words, does not mean that he stopped being God. God's providence does never ceases. Not one day a week, not ever. For the entire universe is his domain, Isaiah 6, 3. God never slumbers nor sleeps. Psalm 121, 4 through 5. The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator, the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired, Isaiah 40, 28. Three other gospels add in the narratives, that Jesus is Lord even of the Sabbath. Do you see what Jesus just did? In his legal defense, he has actually taught them two things. One, God never stopped working. He never will stop working for he is God. And by the way, Jesus says, I am equal to my father. Therefore, if I work on the Sabbath... Well, of course I should, because God never stops working on the Sabbath. Do you catch the legal defense of what he's done? He's simply equated himself equal to the Father, and therefore, if the Father must work as God, therefore, he must work as God too. And they knew exactly what he was doing. The Son of Man is making a personal claim that God is his very Father. In corporate worship, the Jews would sometimes speak of God as our Father, but Jesus changes this. And Jesus changes it. Look what he says. Verse 17. My father 
is working. Personal. Personal pronoun. It's a miracle story, but it's a tragic miracle story. Not a story about a man who was healed and became a believer. It's rather a man who was healed and became an active rejecter of Jesus Christ. Dr. Lawson, Don showed me recently a wonderful little clip, said this. There has to be a so what in every sermon. So what? So that's interesting that we've been informed. So what do we do with it? How does this transform our lives? But you remember the middle piece I said, information is meant to lead to exaltation that produces transformation. So I hope we've been able to exalt Christ for who he is. But how do we now use God's word in the transformation? And that's the so what. So what do we need to take from this sermon and apply? The story is an amazing warning for them and for us today. We need to consider that many saw Jesus, many heard Jesus, many were healed by Jesus and didn't believe in Jesus. How deeply tragic. Following Christ means that we stop, we turn around, and we pursue him. If you want to please God, it does not matter who you displease. Let me pause on that statement. If you please God or want to please God, it does not matter who you displease. And if you displease him, it does not matter who you please. The healed man wanted the approval of men, the Jews, at the expense of God, to the point that he was willing to turn him in for their approval. Chronicles of Narnia, for those that remember that movie, remember? This is the Turkish delight. Some of you are smiling, the rest of you go, I have no idea what that means. Don't worry about it. Okay, good. To that point, he was willing to turn him in for their approval. But we are too quick to get to the point to accuse him, to point our finger at him. Are we looking to please men or God? Does our life, do our actions, do our priorities, does our money, does our time, does our service at church match our words? What's worse than physical lameness? Eternal separation from God. Two more points as we close. Religious leaders of Israel are faced with one decision. One decision. Will they submit to the authority of Jesus Christ or are they going to rebel against his authority and choose to live autonomously? Will they honor his instructions? Will they ignore his commands? Will they elevate their man-made rules? This battle surfaces for the rest of the book of John. And it's a battle we're familiar with each day. We must decide if we submit to Jesus Christ as our Lord. And finally, Our hearts are a battlefield. Two opposing forces violently clash each day. Our desire to be autonomous, self-rule engages in a fierce battle with an appropriate desire to submit to the lordship of our Jesus Christ. Regardless of who we are and what situation in, we must diligently fight to obey Christ, to put to death our old sinful ways. He that lives in sin and looks for happiness hereafter is like a soweth cockle and thinks to find his barn with wheat or barley. John Bunyan, Pilgrim's Progress.
What did he mean? What we plant, we will sow. If our lives are consumed in the pleasing of men, we will please men. If we live to please God, who are we living to please? God. Prioritize our lives and appropriately orient them. Sin must be mortified. Do we make it our daily work to be always while we're living? John Owen says in the mortification of sin, do you mortify, do you make it your daily work? Do you always be at it whilst you live? Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. We can only win this battle, brothers and sisters, turning from evil and eventual mortification of sin if the spirit of God is within us. It's impossible without it. Meaning we are firstly needing to be saved. The gift of salvation is offered to all. It was offered to the lame man who was physically healed, but he rejected it and he turned away from God. That was him, but what about you? But what about you? You've heard the words. Here's a beautiful promise from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, which I'm sure if you turn to Jesus in faith today, you'll walk away and not have a Super Bowl Sunday, but have a super life. I say, therefore, with reverence, the authority of the word of God, that God sees you in your sins no more and he will see the righteousness of Christ upon you. Lay hold of that. That's the purpose of this. Miracles were meant to engender belief. May it do so today in your hearts and lives. Let's pray. Father, how tragic it is to read of a man physically healed, but spiritually distant, separated from you. To read of the Jewish leaders that chose laws over the Lord. May we never do so in our lives, in our church, but may we take your word, be informed by your word, exalt you through the proclamation of it and the living it out. Transform us to be more like Christ, we pray, through the hearing, the preaching, and the application of your word. In your son's name we pray, amen. Please stand with us and join us as we sing, The Lord is My Salvation. One, two, three.